Well, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 6 is where we're going to be today. Uh, There are five parts of me, and there are probably five parts of you. The first part is that part of myself that I know and I like and I let other people see. The second part of me is that part of myself that I know and I don't like and I try to keep hidden. The third part of me is that part that I don't know, but those closest to me know. My, my family, my, my parents, my wife, my kids, my closest friends. The fourth part is that part of me that I don't know, the people closest to me don't know, but only God knows. God created me in His image, and He knows what my future holds. And then there's this fifth part of myself that only God knows and only I know. It is a hidden part with God. And Jesus is concerned with this hidden part, what we might call the fifth dimension. For him, it is vital to who we are. Of course, our culture finds that hard to believe. Our culture says image is everything. Play to your strengths. Project your best image. Like you might leave the house, and before you go, you might ask, well, how do I look? Or you see a kid, when they climb to the top of the playground, what do they do? Mom, look at me, look at me. From the time we enter this world, we long for approval. And the reality is, every single one of us have faced and will continue to face the temptation to practice acts of righteousness and spiritual disciplines to impress others. Which is why Jesus gives us some examples to highlight the danger of doing the right things for the wrong reasons. We see it in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This is what Jesus says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jump to verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Jesus, in this passage, this part of His sermon, He gives a very clear structure and outline, and He introduces His main point in verse 1. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, we'll say it this way. 
God rewards motives that seek an audience of one, not the approval of others. God rewards motives that seek an audience of one, not the approval of others. And then after this, Jesus gives three real-life examples to help illustrate his point. Giving, praying, and fasting. He begins with giving. Scripture is full of the importance of giving. The Jews would bring their offerings to the temple as part of their worship in the same way that giving today is a part of our worship to the Lord. And Jesus says when we give, don't announce it with trumpets. Now, there's no evidence that this ever existed in temples and and synagogues. Jesus here, like he's done previous times in the Sermon on the Mount, he's using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration to explain about those people who come to get praise from others. And we read that and we say, I would never do that. I would never announce my giving with trumpets. But we give in sometimes other obvious ways. The fund that's named after you, the plaque on the wall, when you give with strings attached. These are all ways that we give to be honored by others today. Then Jesus turns his attention to prayer. Now, Jews were encouraged to pray individually at any time, but devout Jews prayed publicly at set times, commonly in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And Jesus says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. The pagans babble in prayer because they think that the more words that they use, the more light that their gods will hear. Do you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18? where Elijah faces off against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It says that the prophets of Baal, they danced around the altar and they cried out to Baal from morning until noon. But no one answered. There was no response. Some pagans ran through a rapid fire list of naming their different gods when they prayed and hope of one and hope that one of them would answer. It's like they sent out a mass text to to all their gods. Hey, is anybody up? Is anybody listening? And Jesus says this is the wrong way to pray. Now, there are some people who, when they read this passage, they say that you should never pray about something more than once. But listen, it's not wrong to repeat your request to the Lord. Jesus prayed the same prayer three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. He also often taught about the importance of persevering in prayer. What's wrong here is meaningless repetition. Either saying the same thing over and over and over again because you don't think that God heard you the first time, or even worse, trying to manipulate God into answering you by using a lot of words. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2 says, So let your words be few. It's ironic that Jesus' command to not engage in meaningless repetition, it comes to us in the same chapter that we find the Lord's Prayer. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time today to get into the Lord's Prayer, but it is a wonderful model for prayer. It is very meaningful when it is prayed thoughtfully. But you know, as well as I do, that there is always a danger that we might speak this prayer on our lips without meaning the words in our hearts. And that would just be another example of meaningless repetition. 
Then Jesus talks about fasting. Now, fasting is when you abstain from food or drink for a specified period of time. And almost always in Scripture, fasting is accompanied by prayer. And there are different types of fast. There's what we might call a normal fast, where you abstain from food but not from water. Okay, this is Jesus, what He did when He was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Then there's a partial fast. This is where your diet is restricted by avoiding certain foods or drinks. For the partial fast, I think of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, it says that Daniel abstained from meat and from wine. Then there's an absolute fast, where you abstain completely from all food and all drink, usually for a very short period of time of three days or less, and it usually accompanies an urgent need. We see this in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, and in Acts chapter 9, verse 9. And then there's corporate fast. The whole nation of Israel fasted corporately on the Day of Atonement. We see this in Leviticus chapter 23. Giving, praying, and fasting. Notice that in each of these examples, Jesus assumes. Jesus makes the assumption that his followers practice these disciplines. Jesus doesn't say if you give or if you pray or if you fast. What's he say? When you give, when you pray, when you fast. These are good disciplines that Jesus himself practices. And so what you and I need to understand is that these acts of righteousness, what we sometimes call spiritual disciplines, what they are, they are tools. They are not the goal. They are tools that help us grow in our faith and help us achieve union with Christ. They are not, the goal is not prayer. The goal is not giving. The goal is Christ-likeness. And these disciplines help us achieve that. I want you to also notice that these examples uh, do not constitute an exhaustive list. These are just three examples Jesus uses. They could refer to any acts of righteousness. He would say the same thing about serving. He would say the same thing about uh, coming together corporately for worship. He would say the same thing about studying Scripture or singing. Also, I want you to see that Jesus does not condemn public acts of righteousness. Jesus doesn't condemn praying in public. He condemns when you do these things for the wrong reasons, when you do it to be seen and glorified by others. Remember, Jesus prayed in public. All throughout the book of Acts, the the early church, the, the Christians, they prayed publicly. Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. So we we read Jesus' words here, and some of us may think, is, is Jesus contradicting himself? Because we read in Matthew chapter 5 just a few weeks ago, Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, let your light shine before others. And now Jesus is saying, when you pray, do it secretly. Is Jesus contradicting himself? No. If you remember, Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, and what? And they will praise your Father in heaven. See, in Matthew 5, it's all about shining your light so that God gets praised. And here in Matthew 6, Jesus is warning people about doing righteous acts so that you get praised. 
Also, I want you to notice that rewards are the byproduct. They are not the driving motivation of our acts of righteousness. Followers of Jesus do not give in secret in order to win some heavenly reward. We give in secret out of love. We give in secret in order to please God. We give in secret in order to meet needs. The byproduct of that is reward. See, for Jesus, it always starts with why. And that's no surprise because why gets to the very heart of the matter, which is what Jesus cares about the most. Why reveals motivations. Think about how businesses and corporations and churches and and individuals will spend a lot of time on what and how and very little time on why, right? There's a new product. There's a new initiative. Here's what we're doing, and here's how we're going to do it. We spend very little time explaining why, but it should start with why. Give me a compelling why, and I'm in. And so here's the question for you. When it comes to living out your faith, why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? There's a contrast in motives that Jesus highlights between attention getting and attention giving. I want you to notice, first of all, the danger of attention getting. Jesus says when when you do things to get attention for yourself, you have the wrong motive. You're seeking the approval of others. Look what Jesus says, verse 2. These are people who give to be honored by others. Verse 5, people who pray to be seen by others. Verse 16, people who fast to show others. And when you do this, you're making it all about you. I want the praise. I want the glory. I want the attention. This is what happened to Herod in Acts chapter 12. Do you remember this? He's sitting on his throne and all the people praise him. And it says in Acts 12, verse 23, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Whoa. I mean, talk about a serious consequence for making it all about yourself. See, Jesus calls these people who do these acts of righteousness in order to be seen by others and get approval from others, he calls them hypocrites. In ancient Greek, the word hypocrite referred to actors who wore different masks to play various roles. And when we think of a hypocrite, what do we think of? We think of someone who says one thing but then does something else, right? But Jesus here, he highlights a different kind of hypocrisy. It's doing the right things for the wrong reasons. That, he says, is also hypocrisy. And for that person, Jesus says, they have received their reward in full. There is no further reward. In Jesus' day, businessmen would regularly write the phrase, receive their reward in full on receipts, to indicate that no further payment was required. And Jesus is saying that those who give or pray to be admired by others instead of God, they already have what they wanted. They wanted the approval of men, that's what they've got. There will be no further reward. They will not be awarded again for their deeds on the day of judgment. See, the problem when you live to get attention for yourself is that if you live for other people's approval, then you will die by their rejection. 
the approval and praise of others, it's never enough. You think that, that it will satisfy you. You think that's what you really want, but you get it and you find that it doesn't fulfill. In April of 1967, hamburger lovers in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, met a newer, bigger burger. It was called the Big Mac. And for 45 cents, it delivered. As a 1970s jingle would have it, two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions on a sesame seed bun. A year later, the Big Mac was on the menu at McDonald's restaurants all over the United States. By 1969, it accounted for 19% of the company's total sales. Today, the company sells about 550 million Big Macs annually in the United States alone, and millions more in countries all over the world. But my guess is you've never heard of Jim Delegati, the McDonald's franchise owner who invented the Big Mac. Delegati owned about a dozen franchises in the Pittsburgh area by the mid-1960s, but he struggled to compete with the big boy and Burger King chains. After pitching his idea to his bosses and facing stiff resistance, McDonald's finally relented and agreed to let him try it out. The Big Mac was introduced on April 22, 1967. Sales perked up immediately. The company rolled it out nationwide, backed by a powerful advertising campaign. In 1986, The Economist magazine introduced the Big Mac Index. It shows whether a currency is overvalued or undervalued based on the cost of a Big Mac in one country relative to the cost in another. In 2007, Mr. Delegati opened the Big Mac Museum restaurant in North Huntington, Pennsylvania with a 14-foot-tall Big Mac sculpture as its centerpiece. Now, there are a lot of people who assumed that because Delegati had invented an iconic and very profitable menu item, that he must be worth billions of dollars. Not so. In 2007, he told a local newspaper, all I got was a plaque. You know, human praise can be pretty underwhelming, and it never satisfies. That's why as followers of Jesus... We need to live for the praise of an audience of one. We need to live for God's approval. We do that when we live for His glory and not our own. Second, notice the blessing of attention giving. When we live to give God the attention, then we have pure motives according to Jesus. When we give God the glory, we're doing so out of love, a love relationship with our Creator. We're doing so out of gratitude and thankfulness for everything that God has done for us. See, it's about God. It's not about us. We long to be like the psalmist who says in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. God will not give his glory to another. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so the person who lives for God's glory and not their own, Jesus says, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You say, well, what's the reward? It is an inner righteousness in this life and complete perfection in the life to come. The reward of God is greater 
than the praise of man. Because it's eternal. It's not temporary. It's not fleeting. It lasts forever. Again, it all comes down to why. It's about motives. Why do you do what you do? Do you do it to get a pat on the back? To get admired by others? To get praise and approval? Or do you do it because you love God and you are so grateful? Because you want to continually be transformed more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ. I can tell you this, God is not impressed by your attempts to impress others. So what do we do? How do we move from attention getting to attention giving? I think the antidote first is found by examining yourself. We have to examine ourselves. Ask that question of yourself daily. Why do I do what I do? Pray this prayer, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As I shared in the beginning, there are only two people who know your internal motivations. You and God. I don't know what your motives are. You can fool people. You can even fool yourself for a time. But you cannot fool God. God sees all. God knows all. So ask God to search your heart and reveal if your motives are wrong or pure. Examine yourself. Then practice your righteousness in secret. Jesus says this is the answer to resist the temptation to seek approval from others, is to practice your righteousness in secret. You know, we've talked about giving and praying and fasting. You know, one of the blessings of technology is that, you know, a lot of our giving, a lot of us have moved to giving online, and that is a way to, to keep that secret. There's not that temptation to, to pass the offering plates and, you know, drop, you know, just dollars in there so people can see. It, it, it's discreet. Even when you give in person, offering boxes in the pack, in the back make it, make it more discreet. I think of the story of uh, the English preacher Charles Spurgeon and his wife. They would sell, but they refused to give away the eggs that their chickens laid. Even their family members and close friends were told, you may have them if you buy them. And as a result, there were some people who thought that the Spurgeons were greedy. But they accepted the criticisms without defending themselves. And it was only after Mrs. Spurgeon died that the full story was revealed. All of the profits from the sale of their eggs went directly to support two elderly widows. Because the Spurgeons were content to live for an audience of one, because they were unwilling to let their left hand know what their right hand was doing, they endured the attacks in silence. Or what about giving? Or excuse me, what about praying? Do you pray more in public or do you pray more in private? That's a good test to know what your motivations are. I want to encourage you to find your secret place. Find that place where you can get alone with God, just you and Him. Maybe it's a prayer closet, a place in the house that's away from everyone else, free of distractions. Maybe it's kneeling down next to your bed. Maybe it's out on the back deck. 
Maybe you've got a chair in your house that, that you just love. A chair that, that faces out the window and it's just the place where, where you spend time with God. Maybe you love nature and, and there's a trail that, that you walk and, and it's just your time to be alone with God. Finding that place is so important because there is no substitute for the deep work of inner transformation that happens in that secret place between you and God. And listen, as a pastor, I know that, that I face this temptation probably the most because most of my life, so much of my life is spent in public. And so how much more important is it for me to examine myself daily and have a growing inner life? There are a lot of us who spend time in front of others, whether it's serving here, whether it's teaching, whether it's in, in front of a staff. And, and I'll tell you, I am convinced that for me and for you, that everything you need in the public space will be given to you in the private place. It was April 29th, 2015, and the Baltimore Orioles were playing against the Chicago White Sox, and they played it in front of zero fans. Every seat was empty. This bizarre development was mandated by Major League Baseball in wake of protest and outbursts of violence in the city of Baltimore. Here's how an Associated Press article reported the incident from the fanless game. Chris Davis might have hit the quietest home run for the home team in Orioles history. As the slugger pounded the ball deep onto Utah Street, just a few feet from where fans normally would have sprinted after a chance to catch a souvenir, there was almost nothing to hear. The only muffled cheers came from a pocket of diehards locked out of Camden Yards yelling, let's go O's. On this day, 30,000 Orioles fans had been muted. The wild applause had been silenced. There were no fans to stand for a standing ovation. Just Davis's teammates coming, coming over for high fives. He said, when you're rounding the bases and the only cheers you hear were from outside the stadium, it's a weird feeling. No live audience. No cheering fans. No applause. I want to ask you, as a follower of Jesus, how much does the audience affect your performance? How much does the cheering crowd motivate you to do a good job? Or are your motives pure? Do you do what you do out of love and out of gratitude? Are you content to live before the Lord as your audience of one? Your true self, who you really are, is who you are when no one is watching. So together, let's commit to live for an audience of one. Would you pray with me? Lord, today we ask that you would search our hearts. God, if there is anything impure, if there are wrong motives in our hearts, God, would you show that to us? Would you purify us so that we can live solely for you and you alone? God, the temptation is there. We'll face it every day to do good things for the wrong reasons. God, I pray that we would do everything that we do for you out of gratitude for what you've done for us, the love that you've extended, the love that you have showed us in the person of Jesus when he came and he lived a sinless life for us. He gave it all for us. 
So God, we do what we do because we love you. That's our prayer. God, I pray that that our motives would be pure and as we spend time in that secret place with you, that it would be a time of richness, it would be a time of inner transformation as you create us and mold us and shape us into the person that you've longed for us to be. As we become conformed more and more into the image of Jesus, that is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.